Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 208 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Caitlin McGratton. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Speech-Language Hearing Science at the University of Minnesota with a clinical appointment at Masonic Children's Hospital. She completed doctoral training in health and rehabilitation science at the Medical University of South Carolina and postdoctoral training in neonatal gastroenterology at Nationwide Children's Hospital and pediatric otolaryngology at Medical University of South Carolina. Her research focuses on the use of refined physiologic assessment to identify impairments in neonatal upper aerodigestive physiology and apply targeted therapeutic interventions to maximize treatment effect. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old-school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Caitlin. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be on. Yeah. Yeah. So tell the people a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So I am a clinical researcher. I specialize in pediatric aerodigestive physiology and function. So Simply put, I specialize in swallowing and breathing in um, medically fragile babies with a special interest in babies that are born premature and those that have heart defects and spinal muscular atrophy. So those are my three main areas of interest, though all of them really intrigue me. And um, yeah, I'm at University of Minnesota. I've um, kind of been a vagabond throughout life. I've moved around quite a bit, which has been great. I've been... um, given awesome opportunities along the way. So I've been at Medical University of South Carolina, where I did my master's in my doctoral study with Dr. Bonnie Martin-Harris. I did postdoc at Nationwide Children's Hospital, Ohio State, where I um, specialize in neonatal gastroenterology. 
And then I did another postdoc back in Charleston, South Carolina in otolaryngology. From there, I moved up to Chicago um, when Dr. Martin Harris moved up there and was at Northwestern, took a position um, at Harvard Boston Children's Hospital, and now I'm at University of Minnesota. I love it. I love it. I love it. So if people ask you if they should move for a job or an opportunity, what are you going to say? I say 100%. (laughs) Oh, my God. I mean, the world is super cool, so why not go to four different places? But then also, like, oh, my gosh, it's so nice. I think it's so reassuring to know when working at different places that the grass is always greener one is one fact and then to um just to see how different places function is really reassuring and know that all so many places struggle with similar problems always made me feel a little bit better (laughs) yeah 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 I mean how cool to meet so many different people and you know doctors and colleagues and I mean yeah it's been great I love that yeah yeah awesome okay so what are we going to dive into today So uh, I thought we would chat a little bit about a study that we've been working on over the last couple years. As with most endeavors of mine, they start out as like small little, oh, this will be a quick little project. Nothing is ever quick or easy. Um, And so it's been going on a couple years now, and we are just going to be recruiting our last participant next week. And the project is trying to understand more about how healthy full-term babies eat, what is normal, with the main goal of using that to help us identify what is not normal. Awesome. So, yeah. Awesome. All right. So where should we start? Um, so overall, what we did for this study is, um, the, I mean, the background behind it is that um, we have kids that we're evaluating constantly for signs of impairment, right? So we look at many factors, of course. One of them is if they're coughing with feeds, that's kind of like the dead giveaway of like, okay, this seems like there's something going on, right? That's the hallmark aspiration sign. But in my practice, I, I know personally, I've always wondered, you know, if I see that once, then I'm like, okay, well, we know babies don't feed perfectly because they have immature neurologic systems, or I guess I shouldn't say we know that we would postulate that. Um, and so then I always just feel like I'm struggling on the best way to move forward. Like how, how do I interpret these results? Does one cough mean it's okay? Does two mean it's not um, obviously taking into context patient variables, but I, after struggling with this many times, I kind of came to the conclusion that in addition to coughing, there's many variables that we don't know about how healthy babies eat, even like volumes that you should expect, you know, like people ask, oh, my baby's eating this, is that enough? And, you know, that we don't have clear cut answers for things like that. So this project is really aimed at filling that void in my clinical practice. Most of my studies are like kind of selfish in that standpoint, because I'm like, oh, this is driving me nuts. Let's kind of find an answer. Um, And so that we can better identify kids that need to be referred on to swallow studies that need potentially more conservative interventions. And then likewise, um, hopefully, I think, I do think sometimes what happens is we, um, we sometimes overtreat patients because we see one slight imperfection and, and, you know, we have this like hammer nail phenomenon going, we're like, okay, everything is a problem. And so I, I'm hoping that this can be one small step in, in getting there. So with that said, um, what we did for this study is we had this as a parent report study. And so this started about two months before COVID, which worked out perfectly um, with COVID because <laughs> um, we said, all right, well, let's, let's take a look at how how many times, like the main outcome is how many times babies cough during a feed. And 
So what we did is we recruited parents of healthy term babies, didn't have any medical complications. They couldn't have um, any feeding problems that were concerning to the parent beyond. Um, I will say the only one we did allow to be included was if there were reports of like a tongue tie or like lip tie. And the reason for that is the literature on diagnosing those and when those are revised and the impact on feeding is so mixed that we figured we'll include that and then we can analyze that as a subset if we want. Cool. Um, so we included all of those and um, we recruited them from the postpartum unit initially, but that ended pretty quickly after COVID happened. And so then all of our recruitment um, efforts turned towards friends and family and social media, which was crazy successful. We actually tapped into a lot of the speech pathology, like social media groups. And I think this is like the unexpected perk I didn't anticipate from this is it's been such a cool opportunity to connect with practicing speech pathologists who want to give back um, to science. They don't necessarily want to lead a big investigation, but they want to give back and they're super interested in it. And so we've gotten to meet really neat people along the way. But what we did is we had them, um, track two days a week, so 40 hours, day and night, um, information on their baby's feedings. Now, now like this day and age, most parents use like apps and things like that to track stuff anyway. So our ask was pretty small um, in that most of this stuff we asked to collect, they were already doing. So in the um, data collection, we said, what we need from you is to record what time the feed started um, and how many coughing episodes the baby had. And so by coughing episode, I mean, if the baby was feeding, they got choked up um, and they coughed twice in a row, we would only count that as one. Um, and then if later on they got choked up again, then we would count that as two. So not individual coughs. Um, so those were the primary outcomes that they needed to collect. But then we said, kind of the way I phrase it to them is they're kind of like icing on top of the cake outcomes that we're curious about too. And so if your baby is bottle fed, if you could let us know what nipple they used, how much they drink, and the feed end time, that would be great as well. And the reason we didn't do feed end time for breastfeeds, we started it, um, but they were so variable. Um, babies fall asleep during breastfeeds, it seems like so much more. And so the numbers were just crazy. People would forget the end time a lot because in the middle of the night, you typically remember what time the baby woke you up, but you don't remember what time you got them back down. And so, yeah, that was just kind of a headache. So we ended up not including that for breastfeed. Um, But yeah, we collected the other ones as well. And the way it worked is we set up this like texting system through Qualtrics survey. And so um, after consent, parents would, we started data collection the fifth day of life. And so pretty much as soon as the baby was discharged from the hospital, I would keep in touch with these families two weeks prior to their due date. And so I, the, I feel like I get all these awesome birth announcements yeah. constantly in my life. It's like constantly a celebration. I'm part, some people have texted me in like the delivery room and I was like, man, you're getting to research. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like great. I need to be like their Lamas person in there. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Oh my gosh. That's great. So, um, so yes, I have been part of many families journeys at this point over the last few years, which is super cool. And, um, and yeah, so they, we would, once they got home and kind of settled in, then we would consent them and they would get a text on the fifth day of life to say, just a reminder to start tracking feeds. Word on the street is new um, families have a lot going, so they might need a little reminder here and there, and that worked out well. 
And then they would track for the two days. After two days, they would get another text saying, thank you, and please upload your results at this link. So they could upload those. They would fill out a couple surveys on their baby's weight, their health, um, their perception of their infant's feeding problems or not problems. Um, and the main thing for that was in part to make sure that we didn't need to exclude a baby because they were maybe failure to thrive. You know, they weren't gaining weight. But also just to see, you know, we have some of these questionnaires that have been developed for infants with feeding problems. And there's certain outcomes on that that are associated with swallowing problems. And so we kind of wanted to see like in healthy individuals, like how do they actually respond to these? And so, yeah, we have those as well. Did you find that any, any moms did think that their babies had feeding problems? Like, I mean, just as a mom, like as a new mom, you're like, I don't know what's normal. I don't know what's not normal. What yeah. Is, yeah. So one of the questions on the surveys was, um, do you, are you concerned about your baby's feeding problems? And some of the families did, so like I'm just thinking offhand, we um, reported the initial 30 participants. We'll have 60 total in the end. But the initial 30, I think only 4% had concerns about how their baby is feeding. And then when I reached back out, you know, that was part of our protocol. Like obviously if somebody's concerned, we want to help them and plug them into where they need to be. But when we reached out, um, they all were like, oh no, like I have concerns about everything on my baby, but it doesn't require like interaction. So, so that was good. I mean, in part, a lot of them were speech pathologists. So I think they felt pretty well equipped to handle it, but not all of them by any means were. So yeah, but we did interestingly in, in the survey results of um, how people perceived their baby's feeding, lots of reports of people saying that they had to do special things to make their baby eat. Um, that, you know, their baby would cough and choke. They'd have sometimes prolonged feeds, you know, all these red flags that if somebody tells you when you're doing a case history, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's a problem. (laughs) Yeah. All these kids are not all, but a lot of them are doing that. Yeah. This is also fascinating to me because I have my son has special needs and he was 15 days in the NICU because he had a NG tube, was not eating by mouth. It was a total disaster. And then I had my daughter who was a crazed animal and would eat everything and any, like I could not, I could not pump enough breast milk. I could not give her enough formula. Like, so it's just so wild to experience that because I was like, okay, I'm guessing she's quote unquote typical, but like, is this typical? Like she's a wild animal. Like, right. was, and especially when you're used to NICU because everything is so measured yes. and like monitored that it's like black and white, right? They're like, Oh, they're good enough. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, so interestingly, I had my son during this and he was in the study as he's in more studies than I think I can count, but, um, he, he was one of the worst feeders we've had in the study. He's an awesome human being, but feeding was not his specialty. (laughs) And so, oh my gosh, I actually found knowing the data was really reassuring for me because it was, his feeding was so bad that I was like, oh gosh, like, do I need to, like, yeah, yeah. like I'm not going to take him in for this, but like, this is any other kid, if, if they brought me him in, I would have been like, yes, there is a situation going. So, so yeah, knowing the numbers actually was really reassuring to me, um, as, as a parent. So I was like, okay, so he's not the only one that's doing this that yeah. feels better. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this is so interesting and I think this will be so valuable to our profession long-term because I think, You know, in my son's case, he's five, almost six now. He was in the NICU for 15 days. He was in, 
I think it was a level two or a level three NICU and they didn't even have speech pathology. Like, so I was like, what is our plan here? People know like, well, he's just got to figure it out. I'm like, you don't just stick an NG tube down a kid for 15 days and tell me I got to leave him in the NICU without a plan. Right. But for me, I mean, that really set off my whole crusade of like wanting to educate SLPs about what we really are capable of. And I think, you know, this study is going to lend so much information into, you know, we need to get into the NICU or, you know, we need to have more of a role with peds feeding or, you know, newborn feeding because if, you know, we need to know the red flag so we know that, you know, we can help, help kids, help babies. Yeah. yeah. I think it's, it's totally, it's both. I see it both sides of the spectrum where it's like, okay, this, we need, I think, we need to be supporting people more than we are in a lot of places. Some places are doing fabulous, but it's, you know, I say to my students, like, I think that there's a huge need even just for healthy term babies. Like parents are, you just give them a baby and, you know, feeding is not easy for a lot of healthy babies. And it doesn't mean that they need a swallow study. doesn't mean they need thickening and all these things, but they need help. And even if that is, you know, sometimes I feel, especially in peds where, we don't have a ton of treatments, you know, we, we don't have strengthening treatments and things like that. But what I think I've kind of appreciated through this study as well in clinical practice is that just to be a supporting person there and, you know, listen and, um, you know, say, okay, like this is what's going on, help them understand why it's going on and kind of give your anticipated trajectory. Um, that is so, so valuable. I I, the, I didn't, we didn't pay people for this study. It wasn't funded. Um, and we did say the perk, the, the care I was hanging, like, if you have feeding problems, feel free to reach out. And I was shocked at how many I, I gave them myself, which maybe in hindsight wasn't the best move, but how many people was, were texting with questions or random, you know, things that they didn't feel like they had the support network to go to. And so I think, yeah, that just speaks to, we just need to support people on, on yeah. both sides and, and help them along. Yeah. So, yeah. Awesome. So, yeah. so, so yeah. Um, I'm trying to kind of go, we, as far as that, we had actually amazing retention. I was surprised. So when we asked our ask of people, we said the least amount of data we can use from you is a month. But you could obviously they could stop at any time, but just some people are like, okay, what's the minimum I can do this that would be helpful? And so a month was kind of what would be helpful. And then max, we said we would follow them up to six months of age and kind of, you know, just because that's when things kind of start to transition a little bit more. And we've had a lot, I mean, the retention we had during the study was really impressive. Certainly, I think the the biggest time we would have drop off is like around three months with when maternity leaves end and people are going back to work. Um, but overall individuals were just so great. Um, and I think one thing that we did do, I don't know if it helped or not. It seemed like some people found it interesting at least was, I think I've spent a lot of time in my research roles, I guess, prior to, uh, is talking to the people on the other side and like the nurses that are involved in research, but then never hear the results and the speech pathologists that are involved, but then they, they never, they're like, okay, thanks for your help. See you later. And they don't get the results. And so I feel like a huge goal of mine as research is to make sure to close that communication gap. And, you know, if I, if I don't have a grant to pay them to be in the study, or even if I do, um, people like to know what they spent their time doing and how it influenced. So we would send them, once a month, sometimes once every six weeks, if it was a busy month, I would send them just a, a picture of their feeding log of their, their, like a graph showing like how their baby's costs changed over time. 
And people found that really interesting. And, and we'll, of course, send them the manuscript when the, when it's done, um, pending acceptance and stuff. But I think that helped a little bit because it wasn't just one-sided. So that is something that I learned in this study that I would definitely do in others is to, you know, money is great. It gets people involved. But I think engaging them in other ways is also helpful to do studies if you're on like a tight budget. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I know that I was a part of a study like three years ago, maybe. And same thing. I was like, were these ever like publishing where they're like, oh yeah, it was here. I'm like, never knew. Like, this is really fascinating. But yeah. Hey, you want to know. Yeah. Some of us want to put in the baby book. Yeah. (laughs) The virtual baby book. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we had, um, people stayed in and they did a great job. We would, um, we'd have team meetings each week, review the records. Our grad students involved on this study had just been phenomenal. They would get assigned like a parent. I think they might wait to have kids based on this. If they see how little (laughs) new parents sleep, they're all like, Oh my gosh. Um, but yeah, they can like transcribe like messy handwriting from the middle of the night. Um, and, and yeah, at this point, like I said, we, we have just a, couple more babies that are cut end point with 60 and we I think we'll probably exceed that um but we're done at the end of this month so we'll have those kids to follow a maximum six months so probably when we're getting down to around summertime this year we'll have all of the results ready we we hope to publish the the preliminary results of the first month in the next couple months as well um but basically what we've been finding is that yeah, like babies aren't perfect feeders to no surprise. Coughing is, you know, extremely common. Um, and just looking at the data we have now, we're seeing that. So if you just look at the average of the first, um, 60, well, we have 58 babies, um, recorded here, but the average percent of feeds with a cough each week was 20% during the first week. Um, and it kind of, there's a slow decline just looking at it. I don't know if it's statistically significant, but it declines from about 20 to once you're getting closer to six um, months old, then you're down to about 9% of these that they're coughing. So that's interesting. Again, just indicating that coughing on occasion is not abnormal. What's interesting, I had a good conversation with this with Dr. Jitrilla at Nationwide Children's Hospital. And when I presented this at DRS, we we presented it kind of with the angle of coughing is considered a sign of aspiration and a bad thing. And so we're tracking how frequently this happens. And he kind of angled it the other way, which I thought is fascinating. He said, well, this is interesting. But my thought on this is that essentially like a cough response is a normal response to aspiration with older children. Obviously, younger babies have more silent aspiration but that maybe the fact that these babies are coughing is indicating a good thing. And you need to be concerned about the babies that aren't coughing because it's silent aspiration. They're not doing anything to clear their airways. And I thought that's actually really, you know, an interesting thought. And so, you know, kind of our goal is to do this in patients referred for swallow studies or clinical evals due to swallowing problems and compare just how this data looks across, um, across those groups. We found that um, overall, again, just looking at the results to date, that kind of my thought is, well, it seems logical that on occasion a baby would cough, just like if on occasion we all probably cough a little bit if we're eating and drinking, hopefully not every time though, right? That would be more indicating a problem. And so then we counted how many times did they cough in those data collection periods and um, so found that on average during the, the first week, they could cough up to five times, like in a two-day 
data collection period. And then um, as time went on, like if they coughed, it was much less. It would be like one time or something. So again, just speaking to, I think, the neurologic immaturity of a baby. I mean, the thing I try to remind students is that you don't expect a baby just to get up and like walk perfectly the first time they're learning. And so it's, I think it's important to keep that in mind when you're looking at these babies, when they're learning to feed even a healthy term baby is that their brains are so immature um, that's what makes them all the baby things that they are. And so we shouldn't expect perfection was kind of the, the end thought from that standpoint. Yeah. Well, I guess long-term where you see this information going, cause like, I think I, I'm thinking of like, you know, when you go to the pediatrician's office and they have like flyers for like every sort of, you know, like if you need GI or if you need ENT. And I just think, and I said that to our pediatrician because there's one for breastfeeding. And I said, that's all well and good, but like I can get, you know, milk out of my boobs, but the kid can't drink it. So where do we go from here? And, you know, so I see this just being, you know, so helpful in that, you know, are these red flags, you know, is your baby quote unquote typical or do you need to seek intervention? And from where? That's a great point. You know, I've actually not really thought about that avenue, but you're right. Like most pediatricians now, I think each well baby visit you get, they give you like a flyer of what to expect, right? And those are great. Like I like them. And so I think that that would make sense to put things like this as far as like, what are red flags for feeding problems? And um, yeah, I think, pediatrician to pediatrician varies so much on like their referral patterns. Cause I think a lot of people, I don't know that, I don't know that pediatricians definitely get like the variety of what happens, but I don't think a lot of times they completely can understand how bad a situation is by parent report. You know, absolutely, absolutely. Like, I, think, yeah. I think a lot of times they're like, Oh, like it's a fussy bait, you know, yeah, and yeah. maybe it is, but like that person needs support even so. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I think that that would be great. Um, we definitely like to get norms. I mean, I think N of 60 was, I was happy with that. And I, I think that that is a good start, but we definitely need more than that. I think to get norms and, and a, a big part that we really need to do. And I, we've actually tried really hard to do this, but I haven't had a lot of success is to, um, increase just the, the different individuals that we have involved in the research. So, Again, most of the recruitment we have was through social media, um, you know, my networks and things like that. I had sent it to friends that have more diverse backgrounds than myself and in things like that, different locations to help improve that. But we really didn't get a lot of diversity in our sample, to be completely honest. And I was really, I would say if anything with this study, I'm disappointed in that because we put in actually a tremendous amount of effort to do that. We contacted our, you know, diversity, you know, group we have on campus to help figure out like how can we get into different communities to increase this. But I think a big limitation was with COVID and um, we couldn't necessarily get to locations in person in the initial parts. And, um, you know, so I think we're limited there. So I would love in the future to improve the diversity represented in this population because that's a huge, as you know, void in most literature that is out there is that it's sampled on a very homogeneous set of individuals. And we know from many different areas of study that that is not representative of the population. So, yeah. Awesome. I'm trying to think of some of the other, oh, one of the other big outcomes you'll probably resonate with after being in the NICU was um, just the feeding durations. And so, 
And as you can probably appreciate from maybe your daughter experience um, versus your son is that we had tremendous variability in how long feeds lasted. And so some babies would feed for like two minutes and they'd they'd be done really quick or they would fall asleep really quick. And and that was it. Or other ones would feed for like an hour because you were constantly waking them up kind of thing, or they were just pokey. Um, And so I found that to be really interesting and of clinical relevance because as you know, in the NICU, they typically limit how long you can feed the babies to 20 to 30 minutes. I truthfully don't know where that number came from. There might be a good study behind it. I haven't seen it. Well, so I love that I you say that because that was one of the reasons it. that we were quote unquote stuck in the NICU for so long is my son could finish, what was, I think 60 mLs is what they, that number will like forever be ingrained in my brain. He could finish that, but it took about 40 minutes. And they said that he could not do that. He had to get it under 30. And I said that, I said, who made up this magic 30 number? I said, don't we just want him to eat? And if it takes him 40 minutes, is that the worst thing in the world? Like he, he was, you know, I was doing all the, I mean, I read so much like, um, I'm trying to think of the, Oh my God. But I mean, I'm like, I'm like pumping, like hooked up to these machines, like while I'm reading this literature, but I'm like, we're doing all the perfect things and his swallow is good, but it just takes too long. So you guys are saying it's completely impaired. And I still, to this day, don't know if it was drastically impaired or if he just was a slow baby because he's delayed in every, he's developmentally delayed. So yeah. Yeah. And and again, I just, I think the the premise between, and and again, there may, I'm not saying there's not research. I just haven't seen it. And I haven't looked in fairness, but um, it could be out there and I just didn't see it. But I think the premise is that you're, I have always been set, told that you, the babies are expending more energy than they're gaining if it's over 30, which I can appreciate the concept, but I, I truthfully don't know if it is true for all babies. Um, for a baby that is not going to achieve full oral feeds within like an hour anyway, you know, like it, to me, it makes sense if it's a preemie that this is more of like a practice or a baby that this is practice where even if you let them feed for an hour, they're not able to discharge on oral feeds right now. I get like putting a time limit and optimizing weight gain, but I think exactly what you said, this is kind of the stuff that drives me crazy. I um, lived with a family throughout my graduate and doctoral study with a, a boy that had cerebral palsy and they had a very similar experience to you. And it was really disheartening because I think a lot of times in dysphagia with peds is we, we kind of, I don't know that we mean to, but we, we almost treat parents like we know, we know better and we take that away from them. And it, it's upsetting to me because that is a parent's like primary, you know, job for a little baby. And I think that at some point we need to take a step back and say, okay, would it be ideal if this baby was eating in X amount of time? 100%. We can all agree on that. But if it comes down to, is it ideal that they're staying in the NICU? And if they can get full feeds, but it takes them slightly longer and their weight gain is still improved, you know, they're still gaining weight, then maybe we should not be so rigid on at least look at it on a case-to-case basis. So I agree. I think I've had babies that discharged that were exactly what you're saying with your son. They were fitting that. They were taking a long time. And I said, well, I think I was honest. I said, I think you're very high risk for him not meeting full feeds. Like I think as volumes increase, I don't know that he'll be able to do it, but I am comfortable with trying as like they're 
trusting families that as long as you are and we can monitor weight gain and the team was on board and you know what, those babies surprised me and they did just fine. And I was like, well, there you go. I clearly was wrong. Yeah. 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 It's, it's also fascinating. And I think, I think that's it, Caitlin. I think that's the bottom line is that there just needs to be more education around this in general for both moms, but also for SLPs to be able to know, you know, when is something just a baby being difficult for quote unquote, like, or is this really seriously something that we need to intervene with? And I think that's the hard part is that I know for me, I had no support. Nobody knew it was just, well, I don't know. He's just not eating and we're not sure why. And sorry, good luck. Like come back to the ER if he stops eating, you know, it was just like, it was terrifying. And what's even more crazy is my mom was a NICU nurse manager for 30 years too. I know. So between me and her, like we were probably this NICU's worst nightmare, but I wasn't trying to be because nobody knew, nobody had any, you know, anywhere to send us. They didn't have, you know, they didn't have speech pathology involvement there. So it's sort of was like, we don't know what to tell you. Like it's so needed. And I think also highlights the problem of um, navigating the healthcare system is that you are educated. Your mom is educated. You could advocate, you knew enough to advocate and, I think that your your advocate, whether it felt like your efforts were on deaf ears or not, it probably made a lot more impact to the team than if um, you didn't have an education that would allow you to advocate so in a refined way using evidence and things like that. So again, I just I just my heart breaks for these families that they don't have the health literacy to to be able to advocate and. It, it's, I mean, another void, I'm digressing, but it does drive me a little bonkers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this is really twofold, too. I think speech pathologists need, yeah, even I mean, private practice owners, I mean, tell people what you do. I mean, get out into the community more and make these relationships with, you know, pediatricians, with NICUs, if you do need to, you know, be at an outpatient referral or something. Because, like I said, I just felt so... Nobody knew where to send me. Nobody knew what to do with us. Like, the neonatologist actually called us back, like, a month later. And she's like, I think of you guys all the time. How are you doing? And I was like, I think, okay, I don't really know. You know, like, she's like, I'm not going to lie. I expected you to have to come back in for two feedings. And I was like, no, I mean, he's plugging along. Like, you know, I told you guys it takes. So did they ever at that hospital end up getting like a speech pathologist or something that they can at least refer to? They didn't no. have one. Nope. Yeah. It's hard. I think, you know, maybe even that is like the role of where telehealth could be so yeah, valuable yeah, because yeah, absolutely. You know, I yeah. get that not every hospital can have that. I mean, maybe in the, in the future we can, but as of now they don't and finances might not allow it. But if you can consult kind of like stroke centers, they consult the stroke center. So that seems like a great way to make sure that people get services if you don't have a huge caseload that you yeah, them. Yeah, I think because I did so many phone calls just with the lactation consultant through the pediatrician's office, you know, and I mean, she, you know, they were so helpful. But on the other hand, they were limited by what they didn't know, you know. So, I mean, I think that's a that's an awesome idea. I know as a new mom with a NICU baby at home, I would love to be able to just, you know, call up and talk about what's going on. And yeah, totally. And then you don't have to, I mean, babies feed so much better in their environment when you're not like, yeah, we have another study going right now. Actually, we're trying to develop a new, um, like a smart bottle that essentially can help identify swallowing problems. And, and so as part of this, we're going to people's houses and feeding the babies with this bottle. And it makes me think, man, this would be a cool study in itself because 
even just having somebody there, like based on the baby's age, they feed parents are like, Oh, they're like watching you and they don't usually do this. And we see that clinically all the time when we come to see these kids and they just act different when you, you know, it's like when you bring a car to the mechanic. So I do think like telehealth has huge potential for that kind of thing. That's so so cool. Caitlin. I, I know. I remember Oh, just my mom. She would be like, oh, I know in the NICU we use this other nipple. Let's try that with him. And, you know, we were trying all of those, like the Dr. Brown's, like the super long one, like the one for cleft palate we tried. And she's like, oh, I think he does great with that. Like, it's no, he's like spitting it everywhere. Like, I know. So something like that would would have been so valuable because I think I probably went through 40 different nipples with the organ. Okay, so I have, like, all these side business ideas. That is one of them. I'm like, okay, any of our parents, any peds therapist can tell you, you can judge how bad a problem is based on when a parent comes in with, like, a bag of, like, different bottles they try. You spend, like, a ton of money. They're not, like, cheap. Like, they should have, like, a rental service where, like, if your baby has a problem, they can give you, like, a variety, and then you can figure out which one works best. And, like... Yeah, I kept for the longest time I kept like the bags and bags of everything. And then when I had my daughter and I was like going through all my baby stuff, my husband's like, We have like five containers of bottles and stuff. And I was like, Oh my god, just throw all of that. Like I'm not reusing it five years later on her, but yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh, for sure. Yeah, it's crazy. The things you do, I mean, but if your baby's not eating, your life is like see you later. So you'll do anything. Yeah. Oh crazy. Oh well, I love everything you're doing, Caitlin. This is awesome. Well, thanks. Yeah. Thank you. So where are you guys going now? What, what are you, you know, continuing with this study, obviously? Yeah. So my goal of this year is to wrap up some studies. That is the goal is to clean the slate. I'm so ready to, so I, I don't know. You've probably experienced, you're, you're a go-getter. You've probably had this experience. I, I didn't have my son until much later in life than I don't know the average person, which is great. It, it allowed me to focus on my career in life, but it has been a really tough transition for me from a work perspective in, in that I love him and I love being with him, but I love my work. And so I used to just work nights and weekends, not because I had to, just because like I love doing it. And um, so I currently am struggling with, I'm still saying yes to the same, same things I used to, but I now have like, I have daycare I have to pick up <laughs> yeah, yeah, and these kind of things. And so I'm working to, you know, that real life kind of struggle, just balancing or there's not a balance, but figuring out. No, I I mean, that's like my favorite. Yeah. My favorite saying is balance is BS. And I say that because it's so different for everybody. I mean, some people look at my life and they're like, oh my God, you're crazy busy. I would never want to live it. And I'm like, I love my life. I love my kids, but I love my work too. Right. Just figuring out to be a place where you feel like you're not drowning. Yeah. My goal. Yeah. (laughs) So it's my goal. Yeah. Where I feel like I'm. It it definitely is. Yeah. 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 So I think what's gotten, what's gotten easier is I sort of like, if it's not a hell yes, then it's a no. You know, if it's something that I know that I'm all in that I want to do, then I make room for it. If it's something that, you know, even just getting invited to talks at conferences and things like that, you know, I used to say yes to everything. And now I'm like, realistically, can I take the kids across the country for four days? Do I want to be across the country for four days? Plus, any given talk you give is always, it always like, oh, it won't take long. It takes for, for me at least, I don't know, I'm a perfectionist, but it yeah. takes me a long time to prep. Even if I've given a similar talk, I don't want to give the same one. It takes a while. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's that. So we're working on that. So my goal is to kind of clear things off. So this study will be done. I'm so excited not only to clear off my plate, but for the results, of course. And then we have um, one in spinal muscular atrophy. So 
that study is, it's been such an interesting, fun journey with that. Spinal muscular atrophy is like the adult equivalent of ALS. And so babies born with SMA would historically be born, people thought they were totally fine. Um, but then around like the three to six month checkup, pediatrician would notice like they're not meeting motor milestones. They're not holding up their head. They're something's not right. And um, they would get genetic testing and find out they have this degenerative condition where eventually their life expectancy, if they had the most severe type, which is most common was maximum of two years. Um, it was horrible. It'd always be like the nicest families and the sweetest kids. And the, one of the, I mean, one of the reasons that they would pass away is that the muscles for respiration and swallowing would just be lost. And so they would have an absent swallow. They couldn't, you know, swallow secretions. So that's very sad. But the positive side is they developed these new pharmaceuticals in the last five years that completely transformed this. So it used to be, you know, like a death sentence, really. And now these babies live and they're doing great. And so what we did is um, we kind of, this kind of all happened just at the right time that we started looking at. Um, none of these pharma companies knew much about swallowing shocking, right? But <laughs> um, they were doing the trials. And so they never looked at swallowing as an outcome, despite it being one of the honestly big things that was causing like morbidity and mortality. And so, um, so what we're doing now is we're um, taking a look at these different pharmaceuticals to see like, how does it impact swallowing? How is their swallowing now? Like we don't know. These kids have like a whole new disorder essentially because they're now surviving. They're not perfect. It's not perfect, but we're trying to characterize that and help establish clinical pathways for people. And it's really fun because it's happy now. It used to be a sad, but now it's like a really cool area for speech. And actually one of the areas where um, speech pathology involvement is critical because these pharmaceuticals are about like $1 million for the families to get. They're crazy, crazy expensive. So as you can imagine, unfortunately, um, insurance fights um, families on giving them. And so um, I've had multiple patients where the swallow study was the thing that determined if they could get the better treatment or not. And so that has been super fun to be in because I feel sometimes that we're all passionate about what we do, but maybe other providers might not necessarily like see the value, but like in this SMA population, neurology clinics, like they value it so much and it's been great. So we're um, working on finishing that study up and then we're really throwing. I think what's, oh, what you said about that's so fascinating because I interviewed um, Kristen Lyons from, oh gosh, Kristen, which hospital is she at? And in, in Memphis, it's the pediatric cancer okay. oh, center. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Anyways. Yeah. And she was saying that just now they're having these kids, these babies that are just surviving these pediatric cancers that like you said before used to be a death sentence. So she's like, what SLP's role is now is there's no literature on it. It's drastically different. It's a whole new field because these kids didn't used to live, but now they are, and we have something to work with. So I think that's so fascinating. It's like, if you're getting, you know, like 15 years ago, same kind of, I mean, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, it's awesome. But it does make our job like a little more unknown, which is fun, though. You know, it's cool to be on like the cutting edge of that. Uh, so, yeah, we're doing that. And then um, really our focus moving forward right now is on that bottle development I was telling you about, which has been great. So we're doing we're finishing up the normals arm of that. Just we were measuring their pressures and things. And then at this point, we're now recruiting preemies in the NICU and we're doing a concurrent swallow study with the bottle. And 
and taking a look at at that, which is really exciting and and hopefully um, get those results out soon. So finishing up studies, publishing, that is the name of the game this this academic year in my book. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. I love it. Um, I feel like, Caitlin, I have so many, like, friends, colleagues that love this population. Like, are you looking for clinician helpers in anything? Like, So, actually, that's awesome you asked. So, we have um, what's called the Consortium for Pediatric Aerodigestive Advancement. Crazy long words. CPAA is just how we get it. And so, <laughs> essentially, it is that. And the goal, you know, Dr. Martin here has always, you know, taught me that, like, team science, it, obviously, you have better outcomes. And, hundred percent agree with that. And it's more fun. Selfishly, it's more fun. It's great for me to get feedback of clinicians. I always want to make sure what I'm doing is clinically relevant. So I practice clinically, but nowhere near as much as clinicians that are full-time. I'm not even going to try to pretend that. And so um, I want to always make sure that what I'm doing is clinically relevant. Um, at least one arm of it is. The other arm, it can be more basic science that will help maybe in 20 years, right? Once we get to the mechanism. But I always want to make sure that I'm providing clinicians information that they need that we can use because we have the resources in an academic center. So CPAA is anyone's welcome. We um, have meetings about, again, once a month, once every six weeks, depending um, how busy things get. And it's clinicians from all across the world. We have, I think, about 150 members. There's nothing you need to do for membership. I just had to call it something. <laughs> um, and um, we just send out an email like, and have different topics. So sometimes they're more education-based. So, for example, I um, Kayla Hernandez at Boston Children's Hospital presented on esophageal atresia. That's like a, you know, unique subset that she specializes in. So that was one. But then other times, like, we, um, we always present all the findings that we have as we get them. So publication takes so long that we try to get them out as soon as possible. So, like, last month, we, pub- we presented on our ITSI testing on different formulas. And then we also surveyed all these clinicians on like, what are your clinical practices? What would be helpful? And essentially figuring out the best way that we can give them like different recipes for thickening things using ITSI testing. So yeah, overall, it's great. Anyone's welcome. It's CPAA. Um, if they are interested, they can just email our lab email at cpaa.umn.edu and or cpa at umn.edu sorry and um and just ask me put on the email list and if you can make it great if you can't fine we usually hold them at like 7 p.m central time um or 8 p.m so that people can get home because we all know in the work day it just doesn't happen clinically at least yeah yeah yeah. oh awesome Let, let me ask you kayla are you part of the um the baby vfss yeah, so I was involved in that. Um, I had the opportunity to be in that during my doctoral study um, and during my time at Northwestern as well. So I was involved in more of the development stage. Um, of course, that being said, completely under the, the oversight of um, Dr. Martin Harrison left and right. So I followed their their lead. And um, yeah, so I've had awesome time being part of that. At this point, it's the tool from a scientific standpoint is good to go. I know that Dr. Martin Harris and Dr. Leftengreif are just um, working on the infrastructure for making the website for the training and all of those things. It never seems, again, nothing seems like it'll be as big of an endeavor until you start out on it. So um, that is well underway. And um, I'm not involved in that because it's kind of their, their thing moving forward. But I've been told that it, 
I think it'll be ready within the next year is what I've been been told, I think. So I would keep your eye out for that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you. I know people ask all the time, what's going on? I know. It's just a labor of love, but I think they're, they're really close. I, I, I'm not like really involved at it with at this point, to be honest, but yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you, Caitlin. Great. Well, thank you. Yeah. Did we cover everything? Any final thoughts? I think that's it. No, I think it's great. No, nothing profound. I wish I had something. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you. Have a good um, afternoon. Yeah. Thank you. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.